Buenos dias, amigos. Welcome to episode three of Three Security Buddies. I am your host, Matias Bruti, and I'm joined by Paul Ketterer. Hey, Paul, what's up? Oh, a little tired, but excited to record. And also joined by the almighty Robert Clark. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. It's Siena in Seattle, as you know. Uh, so enjoying the day. Had lunch outside. Did a little work. So living la vida large. Sounds good. <laughs> Anyways, so, uh, you know, I don't think, I think we're going to have a lot of follow-up about Kodakov and supply chain attacks like uh, Rapid7 and Twilio this week came out saying, hey, by the way, we're also affected. Uh, ironically, both of them sort of gave similar narratives. I seen like, yeah, we were affected, but these are internal tools or non-important tools and some customer data was compromised, but not really important data. But uh, the one that it was that went a little bit into details and I would like to get your opinions guys on them is Tulio actually went and said, hey, yeah, like GitHub told us that some of the Uh, somebody had a token and it was accessing repositories and they went into like basically the entire security program and how they find secrets etc and what they were doing and how they added for vulnerabilities interesting read it just felt to me that i was like okay like if they get this level of access uh, it surprised me that you know they only actually they only were able to breach the attacker as much as they said i would have expected that it was a lot more so was this um Is this a private repo that they had that they so Kokov had uh, GitHub tokens for a, a private or an enterprise repo that would, they were using? Is that what happened? They didn't. Well, it says that GitHub uh, GitHub actually contacted them, so I guess it was hosted in 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 GitHub. I assume it was a private one because they say that they also had some keys to access at them, and he had some based on that they check who had access. You know that token, who that token had access. Uh, to which repos and also they went and did some key rotation key material rotation that were uh that were found to be on the repositories which bad practice on itself and they also apparently found a couple of email from customers in those repositories which apparently they have privately communicated to those customers but yeah just just very interesting both of them very interesting reads about You know the things that we sort of imagine will come to be, right? Like uh, uh, a lot of companies that actually do have some sort of an instant response team checking this out, understanding what happened, uh, and moving forward. The, the Twilio one clearly seems that the attacker actually had intentions and it was exploiting this. So this does not seem to be oh we only compromise Cutco, but like apparently attacker was going all over the place. Uh, trying to get access to other things, which you know makes the supply chain attack very interesting. Yeah, this is an interesting one for being more targeted than what we had previously seen. Um, obviously, we kind of assumed that an, any attack like CodeCov is going to eventually result in targeted exploitation. But like as I'm looking through this blog post right now, I see that like. GitHub notified them because there was a set of repositories that had been cloned by the attacker uh, before they were notified by CodeCov even. Uh, and then as part of that, when they were looking, using their incident response systems to look at you know, what, are, what their exposure was, what their risk was, uh, it looks like they discovered that they separately had an issue where a small number of presumably, like it says, email addresses belonging to Twilio customers. So production data effectively were resident in some of these repositories. That's an interesting, like one of those ones where if you had not contained production data inside of it, then the uh, PII disclosure that appears to have occurred would not have been a problem. But also accidents happen and accidents combined with this result in a breach. Yeah, I mean, and this is where I was going, right? When I said this is about practice, you have customer data and you have secrets on repositories, which, you know, We're very honest on the blog post, but it does raise a significant amount of questions as to like, okay, what are your security practices? I mean, we all know that even though you have very good security practices, as you rightly said, mistakes happen. Developers by accident put this data in there, but still, 
you know, like it's, I think some of this, if I, I always tell like a, a very small bridge, usually if you actually do the right thing and it's a good wake up call sometimes to like improve and, and get a little bit of a slap to, to say, Hey, wake up, you know, um, I hope that is the case for most companies and take advantage of this, you know, rely, build better CI/CD pipelines that are not, I mean, you cannot not be prone to supply chain, but at least you can manage or try to understand or minimize the risk or impact to it. But I, like I said before, right, like I think that we're going to have follow up if we actually really care of one new company every other week for the next several weeks. So talking about development and CI/CD pipelines, uh, we've been, you know, Paul, you and I have been hearing a lot of uh, rovers adventures in the Python land. Would you like to share with us, Rob? But you know, we we all know that you're working on this attack tree project, but uh, you've been having some interesting adventures with Python as well. Yes, a little bit. So I'm go- I've been going on a journey from being somebody who writes bad Python to somebody who writes bad Python and uses GitHub Actions to do little bits of CI stuff. What I was actually struck by, though, was how trivial it was to really use them to kind of introduce some decent standards and things into the project. Going back a few years, uh, both Paul and I used to contribute in various amounts to OpenStack. And there was quite a ramp you had to get used to in order to contribute to OpenStack. There were a lot of tests that you had to run locally. There were a lot of tests that got run uh, upstream. There were things you had to do with pre, uh, pre-commit hooks in Git. And I was really just struck by the extra amount of engineering that had gone into GitHub Actions to make them useful and to allow you to define workflows in a really simple way. So attack trees this morning had nothing. Uh, it was just a raw repository, basically. And now it's got a CI pipeline that does uh, Flake 8 linting, uh, deploys uh, my, the PyTests that I've written, um, uses Black for um, code formatting checks. And by the end of today, hopefully, I'll have added Bandit Python checks as well, which is a static anal- analyzer that was also built in the context of OpenStack, but has since moved on to be used at many other places. Um, and I've been really surprised just at how simple and easy this is. It seems like the the tooling is definitely getting better from the last time I looked. I have to admit, I did go to Paul's repository, uh, uh, Paul's repo, and take a look at at a bunch of the uh, the things that he does there, uh, that he and Alex do there anyway for um, their CI pipelines and steal a bit from that. So, Paul, I've not found any of the rough edges here um i still enjoy using it a lot so what are the things as we're on a developer tangent right now what are the things i should maybe look out for or things you would advise me to go read the docs before i try and do in general when you're using when you stay on the paved road of of uh github actions or really any ci service but github actions is i would argue currently the best one you're not going to run into a lot of problems at this point right like they give you a pretty good number of, uh, of concurrent builders uh, for a given organization. You can run Mac, Windows, Linux. Uh, you get less Mac and Windows concurrency than you do Linux, but in general, you're a pure Python project, so you probably don't need to test on those other platforms at all. The place where you start seeing rough edges is when you have things that are not typical. So a good example of that is if you have a complex build process, then your complex build process needs to be encoded inside of YAML. And because you're encoding it inside of YAML, but really you've probably got some bash in there, now your escaping models start looking very strange. In addition to that, GitHub has its own interpolation, and that interpolation is incredibly useful. But you can interpolate GitHub variables into bash that's inside YAML. And now we have an even more complex, hard-to-understand thing about what the actual precedence and syntax actually is. That's where like, I think most people actually start running into the problems because when that happens, you push your commit, you make a PR, whatever you're doing there. And the output from GitHub Actions is invalid YAML. And it becomes this fun adventure of trying to figure out where you need the backslashes or if you need to, like in some cases, you can define an alternate escaping character in YAML and like, do you need to use that? Will that simplify things? Or are you doing the correct GitHub uh, GitHub string interpolation where you need it? 
The last one I would say is something of a challenge is that there's actually a lot of variables that exist inside of GitHub Actions environments, and they are not particularly well documented. The actual best way to get it, it turns out, is there's various, uh, these days there's repositories for this, but you can fork a repository and just run an action that will dump JSON of all the different variables and what those values are in those environments. And that turns out that that's extremely useful for understanding what exactly you want to accomplish. Uh, because the documentation lags behind the capabilities of the system. And perhaps that's inevitable, but it can sometimes be problematic. Yeah, I mean, I know we're on the developer bench. So one of the things actually I, I wanted to get you your opinion on here is you've been doing a bunch of work, attack trees. You've been trying to operate in a modern Python world. And you and I have talked a bit about the fact that, especially in the last eight to 10 years, Python has undergone a, a dramatic transformation in the way uh, you package or what we'll call best practices for packet packaging projects for release. Uh, that includes like shifting from setup.py to setup.cfg to pyproject.toml. You've got wheels that have really kind of become very prominent in a, in a bunch of ways, but also now you all have alternate installation systems, right? It's not just pip, there's also poetry and there's pipenv and all these different things my personal experience with it has been they make the standard developer's life easy, which is to say the developer who consumes a bunch of packages from PyPI, but they make the packager's life substantially harder. So I'm curious what your what your viewpoint is on that. I think I, I, I think your I think your observations are right. Like most of the time when I'm writing Python, it's me throwing together something very hacky to just see if something works or you know, I'm doing it as part of the pen testing stuff that we've talked about previously with me trying to learn some of the basics in that space. But in, in the context of this, yeah, I found it really hard. I wasted several days trying to do the initial packaging efforts for attack tree. And I, I started by going to the standard, uh, the reader docs for this particular, uh, for the Python build stuff and following that through. And that led me down the more recent, um, the Tommel file uh the setup.toml i think it is or the with the well the setup config and there's an accompanying toml file seems to be the the new way of doing it and in there the documentation explicitly says you know you don't need a setup.py and then i go other places and they tell me i do need it and then you get i the reason i spent several a long time at least it felt like days dealing with a problem was actually because i had a typo in my setup.cfg and the interesting thing there is that nothing in the errors I was seeing allowed me to find this typo. Nothing in the behaviors I was seeing allowed me to easily identify it. The problem was with including other artifacts because I wanted to include a JSON file with the package for the default styling. Um, I shared the broken stuff that I had with a few people who packaged stuff for many years. Nobody found the typo or was able to like rebuild everybody was able to see the problem but nobody could see what was wrong and you know there wasn't a stack overflow and there wasn't a like whatever that could help me solve this everything i read and all my attempts to google it just pointed me down four or five different paths depending on which bit of the packaging system i was looking at and the fact that i think in an effort to maintain sort of backwards compatibility there's a bunch of stuff in this in the packaging process right now that doesn't need to be there, like the setup.py, for example. Um, some stuff says I need, say, uh, indicates I need it. Some things indicate that I don't. And I, I feel that part of it's really brittle right now. Like I've got it to a point where it works. It's all committed in Git. I'm a little bit scared to go change it because my experience was just really bad. Like attempting to follow the documentation. Yes, I had a typo, but you know th those things happen a lot. So I think you're, you're spot on in that it's my experience as a novice packager in Python was with a, with a small error in one of the files I had, which I don't think is an unusual situation, was very painful. And when I reached out to people who were experienced, they still couldn't solve the problem for me. That's an unfortunate reality of, of current Python development is trying to move forward and build new systems while preserving the old because... You have to, right? Like we need old versions of PIP. We need old setup tools. Those things still need to work to the extent that we can has resulted in the world where only people who have absorbed through osmosis 
a decade's worth of arcana can understand why any of it works the way it does or where it matters to do the old thing versus the the new thing, right? Like you've done a bunch of work, as much due diligence as you possibly could, and you now live in a world where you have no idea whether or not your package will install on older things, some of which you can avoid by just supporting only newer Python, but also newer Python supports older pip. So like there's some scenario where this will fail for some user and it's impossible to tell for an entirely separate thing that maybe we should talk about in a future episode, which is open source telemetry and the fact that no one knows anything about what happens in the open source world. So like this is a thing that we've struggled with for the entire lifetime of all the Python cryptographic authority projects. And we kind of make best guesses about what when we can advance our requirements. And sometimes we have to back those things back out again. Uh, even to this day, right, there are big components of our setup.py uh, where I'm not sure if they're still required. They used to be. Can I remove them now? Maybe. Does it cost me much to keep them there? Not really. So then it just kind of keeps rolling along uh, because the risk is unknown. And I, because I cannot quantify the risk, removing it becomes unacceptable. I guess the last thing I'll mention is just that the unfortunate implementation-specific problem under, underlying your typo thing is that everything maps to a dictionary underneath the hood. And because everything maps to a dictionary, arbitrary keys work just fine. It's not like a, something like a Golang struct where if you attempted to, uh, to like, hey, I want you to load this JSON into this Golang struct and you had a typo, it would tell you. Python will not do so. That was exactly the problem I had because the problem I had was a mistake in the setup, setup.cfg, which, which is parsed directly into a dictionary and it was a key error. So because I had a typo in the name of a key, it accepted it and I, it was just a, just a key value in the, the dict that it was using that never got read because nothing was looking for my typoed key. Um, that was very problematic. So yeah, it, you call but, that out, but it, it definitely but, is a thing. That but the library was not the library was not defensive enough in, or reactive enough to actually say, "Hey, you are actually missing this variable." I don't know how you would do it because I, I, I think it's very loosely built, right? So the idea is you can provide this big dict, and then, for want of a better term, there are a number of plugins that will kind of look for the things they care about. And I don't believe that there's any, the only way you could catch it would be something that kind of tracked all the, all the keys that were requested. And then somewhere at the end kind of gave you something that's like, hey, you've got these lines in your setup.cfg, like nothing ever looked for this key that you gave, this key value pair that you gave me. I can see that being quite hard to do in practice, but no. So nothing, nothing when I was working with it told me like hey you you gave us extra configuration information that nothing asked for and nothing needed an error like that would have saved me i don't know however many hours it was say 10 10 hours of effort and frustration and going back and rewriting stuff like i actually tried like five different ways of packaging this trying to solve the underlying problem yeah what, where i was going was i assume one of those plugins actually was requiring specific key and it couldn't find it right like a so Unfortunately, it's an optional key. Oh, okay, good. Anyway, interesting. <laughs> Thanks for the clarification. I, I was going to make the joke that whether your error was a space instead of a tab, but um, I guess uh, everybody that uses Python is going to hate me for saying that. Um, anyways, I, I haven't been coding much lately, but like... Um, I could, I I think that you also raised another interesting problem that we could at some point talk. I, I think you could make a, a whole episode like open source telemetry. That that it's you see it in a lot of like when you see Mac apps or iOS apps or uh, it's just general mobile apps. Like telemetry is almost baked in into every single application, right? It makes sense to to have telemetry. A lot of it for bad intent, you know, quote unquote bad intentions, this is like selling you ads or like targeting you, etc. But like, just develop real developer like telemetry. I, I don't see in the open source world. I guess it's almost a bad word for some like uh, people, but real 
private, you know, pri privacy aware telemetry that is respectful of the user, but also allows the developer to provide a better service. And it's a very delicate balance. I think it's something that the open source world needs to get better at. It needs to find an open source project that is willing to provide those, uh, those constructs. Um, but at the end of the day, a lot of these projects and a lot of the people, they're doing this out of their own free will, out of their house, probably don't even have servers or they run out of like free infrastructure like GitHub. So it, it goes to raise the questions, like unless you see somebody like GitHub or some, some big player saying, hey, this is the open source telemetry, you know, kind of like service of the future. Like I don't, I don't see op the open source movement because who is going to host them? Like telemetry, you need to send it somewhere, right? Like, or either some iOS apps is like, hey, if something crashes, you can send me an email. But then again, you have to expect people send you an email. On, on the other hand, if you actually had a big player that actually offer a free service with that was within the lines of what is acceptable in the open source world, it would actually be very interesting. Uh, and and I and probably a lot of projects would benefit. Like a lot of the open source software runs on tremendous amount of different architectures and operating system, etc. So I I don't know. I hope that I, sometime soon we see one of those pop up and actually make a good you know make a good business out of it. Both you know potentially selling for the enterprise, but also offering some sort of like free slash open source version of it. I was just I was just thinking about what that might look like. My initial reaction was that you know you'd really need a cloud vendor or something to step up and say they were going to do it, but no one's going to trust the big cloud vendors to just collect all the telemetry. Um, but then, I, so then I was thinking, okay, well, what about uh, the Linux Foundation or something? Just using hardware donated from maybe a few vendors and they just kind of spread across it. That's fine. And we should probably spend a real episode talking about this where we thought about it for more than four minutes. But um, a model I can see working is an, a set of open source libraries that are built to enable um, interaction with OS telemetry. So um, certainly, obviously, Mac and Windows do a, 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 a very significant amount of OS telemetry and have very well understood privacy mechanisms for opting in or out of those things. So if we had something similar on the Linux side with a similar sort of very transparent mechanism for opting in or out and other mechanisms for protecting privacy, and then logistically somewhere else, something like the Linux Foundation or probably some new open telemetry privacy foundation, whatever, to that would aggregate data from OS vendors I don't think a, you know there's going to be one library that we could just push to all the open source projects in the world and collect all the data in one place. I think I don't know what do you think about the this idea of sending stuff via established kind of OS vendor routes. I mean, I think much like uh, you said already, it's probably better if we we sit and try and actually uh, gather our thoughts and maybe have a separate episode about it. But the very short yeah. version I would give you is that's okay, but I would like to see it's like much of the privacy preserving metrics that currently occur on those platforms are based on ideas that they will strip identifying information shortly before upload or even sometimes post upload. And that means there's a, a certain significant degree of trust still engendered within that system. There's a concept called Prio, which is a, a like privacy preserving metric system that does, it's meant to be essentially a multi-party computation. And it was developed by, uh, let's see if I can remember, Dan Bonet and Henry Corrigan Gibbs, I think. At any rate, they wrote a paper about it. The ISRG, Internet Security Research Group, recently said that they were going to run a Prio server. But of course, that's only one half of the MPC you need. That said, it does provide a path for what you just said, Rob, which is you don't have to trust a cloud provider now. You need to trust that the cloud provider and the Internet Security Research Group are not colluding. And that becomes maybe a more interesting statement. I think there's lots to talk about, but we should uh, we should save it for a future episode. Agreed. Yeah, we should. Uh, so moving along and completely shifting tracks, but sort of still remaining in the line of privacy or not having privacy at all anymore. Um, Alfredo Ortega, he's a security researcher from Argentina. Uh, full disclosure, I actually, you know, we used to, we worked both at Core Security in the uh, mid to late 2000s. 
Um, I highly respect him. He's one of the people that I actually consider him a real security researcher. And uh, a few years ago, he came out with some very interesting research about how to actually use hard drives to record like potential noises in the ambient. Ambient would you know like if you're thinking from a nation state or adversary like a very strong adversarial perspective, it, it would have make a very interesting uh, weapon uh, to spy on people. And this week or or last week, I don't remember exactly when, he actually came out with another very interesting research, or at least a, a Git repository. I, I don't think he has published any sort of paper or anything about it, but uh, a, a very interesting proof of concept called Mouse, Mouse Make, which basically, as the repository states, he took uh, a, a mouse, and with, because of the very, uh, I think if I understand this well, like the very high level of DPI and the sensor of the mouth, he was able to actually convert that into a microphone. So effectively, and he has a video online where he has a huge speaker and puts the mouse very close to it. But regardless of that, or the actual viability of the exploit, he was successfully able to convert a mouse uh, into a microphone, which if you think, okay, if you could actually weaponize this and you could actually record, you know, things that are decent value or even record potentially keyboard strokes, uh, it would make a very interesting attack vector uh, for some people that, you know, like to use this kind of thing. Yeah, I, I thought it was super interesting. So I, I, I guess my point of view is that a mouse is a microphone. Microphones exist to take minute movements and turn them into electrical signals that are then interpreted, in this case, by a computer. That is a broad enough definition that you could also apply it directly to a mouse. The interesting thing, so two things. Firstly, this is brilliant work. I don't, I'm not kind of minimizing that at all. The, the interesting thing here is the, the media he introduces to allow the mouse to observe movement. So he puts a, a piece of paper or tissue paper over the, over the optical sensor, and as you say, puts it near near a, uh, near a speaker, and obviously the sound vibrates the paper, and the mouse is able to pick up on it. And this, I think, you know, I think it was probably written more as just a proof of concept because this uses the uh, X11 uh, graphics APIs, which means that it's basically it's a very high level API. So if you're using a very high precision mouse, something like 256,000 DPI, something like that like high-end gaming mice and stuff can go super, super high. They're able to kind of capture movement at a really, really high resolution. If you've ever used one of those mouse mice with the sensitivity turned all the way up, you'll see that the, the pointer would just fly around almost uncontrollably on the screen. Now, what's interesting is because he's using this high-level API, basically I think there's a lot more sensitivity and a lot more capability here. So if you were to use a much lower-level API, there's all sorts of smoothing and control and like there's a lot of stuff that makes moving a mouse pointer around a screen intuitive and fluid. There's a lot of HCI and a lot of other things that go on in that space. But I think if we were to build like a raw, a raw driver for this mouse hardware, then um, I think, you know, maybe the transition medium, instead of being uh, a piece of paper, maybe that can be a desk, right? And maybe instead of you very needing a very loud speaker, you just, you know, maybe it can pick up people speaking. And one of the interesting things, and, I, and I'll pause in a sec, see what others, what, what, what Paul thinks, but um, I immediately, when I read about this, thought about the research, and I forget who it, who it was. Um, someone recently uh, in the last year released research about um, key logging, acoustic key logging. Basically, by just listening to the way people typed over a period of time, you could build a model, which presumably was just a basic basic statistical model based on the language you thought they were typing in. And over a period, long enough period of time, you could build this typing model, and then you could listen to them hit keys on the keyboard and reproduce what they were typing. And this this immediately made me think of that for two reasons. One, um, obviously the, the audio side of it, but two, I bet a lot of that cadence stuff was to do, a lot of that um, statistical model was to do with cadence versus um, the actual individual sounds of keys, like how, how keys were hit in order and those types of things, which means that the sensitivity you would need was much lower. So I think not only is this a microphone, but I think it also has interesting capabilities to be a key logger as well. 
I mean, a key lower, by the time you actually, ha you, you need to be executing in that computer. I mean, you could say, okay, you could key log somebody, some uh, air gap computer uh, if you had the two computers sitting next to each other and you were typing on the other keyboard and they were in the same mm -hmm. desk. Um, so there is valid use cases, but also, I mean, if, if it was the same computer, it's kind of pointless from a keyloader perspective, but even like, I agree with you, right? Like if, if you actually do this at a very native, like direct driver level, I wonder how much you could do it. Like a glass, a, gra a glass desk, probably you can get, you can get like very useful vibrations. I don't know a wood desk because it might absorb the noise a little bit more. It might be much more difficult for something as big as like, you know, like wood desk, but like some, some of the modern, like either metal or, or glass desk might actually make a, a very in interesting to, you know, high DBI mouse, which by the way, it's kind of like the standard now because everybody wants to be able to sell like, so like low DPI mouses, you don't see them. I would, I would like to see, and I was thinking, you know, would it also be possible with a trackpad? Like how trackpads work, they also work through vibration. And some of them actually, like some of the Mac trackpads have uh, a sensor that literally vibrates in order to make you feel that you're clicking. So... I wonder if that vibrator could actually be used to feel vibrations, not only to uh, create vibrations. I, I, I just find this type of research amazing and edgy, and it, they sort of represent what security research is really about, not only about finding a vulnerability, or talking about it and, and sharing with the community, right? Like, so I, I'm always a fan of Alfredo's research whenever he shows something new. And, and this is right on the line of the, the cool stuff that he usually does. These sorts of uh, stunt hacks, I, although that, that has an almost negative connotation, and I don't mean it in that fashion here. Like, but this sort of like unusual hack, I feel like it needs, it needs a name like for the categorization of it. And the best, the best software equivalent I have for this, type confusion, right? Like the idea being that you have a tool, it has an expected use, and you're using it for something that people did not in anticipate, like a mouse hearing stuff, predicting uh, like values inside a computer based on capacitor wine. Like those sorts of things are all fascinating. Like all these acoustic side channel-y style attacks, although this one's not an acoustic, this is an acoustic attack that does not use an acoustic side channel. It uses a like laser side channel. <laughs> uh, so like I find those fascinating and I, I, I wish we had a better nomenclature for describing them because I feel like they all belong to a similar class. Well, I mean, you said it yourself. I mean, like the, the big nomenclature is side channel attack. I would classify this as a side channel attack. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. It, it's definitely a side channel attack. I just feel like side channel is so broad as is as to be almost a, a useless label at this point, right? Like side right, channel attacks enough. can be anything. Fair enough. Moving along, uh, another interesting piece of research that actually popped up this this last couple of days is frag attacks. So it's a bunch of vulnerabilities and a bunch of issues on the spec itself on Wi-Fi, which basically means that pretty much every single device is vulnerable. Uh, and according to the researchers, they say that at least uh, out of like, I think it was five or six uh, issues that they found, at least every single device is vulnerable to one or more. Uh, which, I mean, this, this is, you know, talking about impact, this is very interesting. Uh, I, I was reading about the attack and trying to understand it, uh, actually how it works. I kind of understood how it works, some of the vulnerabilities. What I still need to fully grasp is how, how practical and besides being vulnerable, how exploitable some of these devices are. I think the research is extremely interesting, but... I mean, I would like to hear you guys, maybe you guys understood it best, but like, it seems that a lot of ducks have to be in line for this to actually successfully work and you being able to actually you know, just, you know, being able to inject the frame that also happens to, you know, be useful to you to attack a, a, an actual computer. So besides you saying, hey, you are, you know, like six months from now saying, yeah, you, your Wi-Fi is more to frack attack. Okay, okay, granted, but like, what is it? What is the real impact of this? That's the part that I actually didn't fully understand out of the picture. My initial reading of it was similar to your own, Matthias, which is this is a super fascinating set of vulnerabilities 
that in many ways my brain wants to say is like a funny, like it's an injection attack like any other serialization attack, except now where it's a serialization attack at the level of a Wi-Fi data frame, which is super cool. But also necessarily an attack like this to be useful will e- either needs to be used in combination with a bunch of other attacks, like if you're remote, or you need to be relatively local, which is to say on the same Wi-Fi network, probably. Like, it seems like you could initiate the Wi-Fi network, or it seems like you could initiate the attack potentially remotely, because you could inject a data frame deliberately using really anything. If you're already communicating, if you're capable of injecting a data frame, then it's going to go over the wire. And depending upon the way the system works, it may choose to reassemble it and provide the invalid data to the, to the, uh, the victim. But like absent further vulnerabilities, you need to be pretty much right there to do anything about that. So I get a very strong impression, but not a certainty, that this is much more interesting in the context of long-tail targeted attacks, because most of these vulnerabilities will never be patched in almost any device that actually ships this stuff. So like, am I worried about it personally right now? No. Am I worried that five years from now, some human rights worker in a country that's not known for human rights gets compromised through an attack based on this? Yeah, probably. Yeah, and and, and some of the vulnerabilities are spec vulnerabilities. So Clara, to your point, like they could potentially never actually be fixed, right? right? So what do you think, Robert? What is your take on it? You know, I largely agree, but I don't think it'll be years. I think we'll see sort of Wi-Fi pineapple versions of this within six months. So I think we'll see versions of this where you can you can turn up an air, at an airport where everybody is just connecting to the free Wi-Fi and have a little box with you that is abusing this in various different ways. One of the thing, one of the ways I saw, and I think we all only had time to skim this as we involved sending back a, a fragmented TCP packet, which for want of a better term, bubbled down into an Ethernet frame that had the fragmentation on it, which I thought was super interesting because that to me meant that maybe there are elements of this you can do from off network or from sort of adjacent networks further away. And that this packet uh, resulted in basically uh, somehow, uh, it was a DNS um, a DNS redirection. So I presume there's part of the Wi-Fi spec that allows you to pass resolver information around as, a, as an extension of some part of the, the management layer in the, in the protocol. Either way though, uh, I, I could be completely wrong about that, but I, that's, I think that was the way this was written. It looks like part of it's been rewritten. I think, it's, I think it will be a thing that becomes a standard part of Red Teamer's kits within a, a short period of time. I know for sure it's going to be a thing that every enterprise in the world is going to see in their pen test reports from now until the end of time. Because as Paul says, it's very unlikely that most hardware will patch this. And it is very likely that detections for it will be built very quickly. At least detections for for pr- the presence of the vulnerability. I think it's also likely that high-end devices may build in active detections for some of this stuff as well. It, do- it doesn't look like it's a particularly well-hidden or stealthy type of attack if you are positioned to look out for it. But yeah, I, I, I think Paul is right. I think that this is a thing that will definitely get leveraged by nation states. I think the complexity is low enough, though, that we'll see it make its way into, for want of a better term, commodity hacking hardware. Not that you need it in hardware. Like You could do this with um, any machine that allows you to do raw networking on the Wi-Fi, so anything with a, a Theros or anything with um, a data-capable SDR or anything like that. So these things would all work. But yeah, I, th- I think we'll see people using it pretty abusively. And if some of the the things, like I said before, like managing to update resolvers, if that's real and wasn't just a fever dream, then um, I would be seriously worried about using, even more worried than normal, about using conference Wi-Fi at uh, any of the big Las Vegas conferences next time around. I, I know lo- ever since one of the reasons that I will continue to will pay for like unlimited tethering no matter how much it costs, I do not like to use Wi-Fi's almost anywhere if I don't trust them. It's just kind of my, my new rule uh, for the last couple of years. Obviously, if I go to a cafe it's, and I'm working there for the entire day, it becomes a little bit more difficult, but certainly not in an airport. And, and nowadays, like 4G and 5G is good enough that you probably shouldn't need it. You're using, 
I'm not sure if you're using a full VPN if you're actually covered against this one once your VPN is up. At least the the stuff I saw, you know, you needed to be parsing out some TCP and, and dealing with it. And if you're using full VPN, that shouldn't be a problem. Yeah. But I don't know. We need to, I, I need to go read a bit more. Oh, damn, I'm covered. Awesome. Check. Yeah. As I read in the, in the uh, malware bytes write up for this, I believe that yes, if you're using a full VPN, then you would not be vulnerable to this. Uh, secondarily, like the devices that do get patched will be patched for this vulnerability, which of course, as we know, does not mean they do not have future ones, but this particular vulnerability, if you're running on devices that obtain updates on a regular cadence within the next two months, you're not going to be vulnerable anymore. Can you actually fix this at the client level? Wouldn't, wouldn't, I mean, if you can inject or trick to inject the frame in the router, that is actually where the AP that is distributing the Wi-Fi signal wouldn't, how, how would the client would be able to, I, mean, I, I, I have to go down and read, you know, like the details about each of the specific vulnerabilities, which, you know, full disclosure, I have not done so. Um, but I wonder, like, yes. it really depended on who you need to trick. Like, I wonder if the client needs to be vulnerable, the client is irrelevant. Like, it, if, if a package gets, you know, tricked into the flow um, by, by the router for the client, that's a valid package, right? Like, I don't, I don't think you have a potential way of saying, oh, this is a malicious package. That would be correct. But, like, from what I can see... These attacks, with one potentially one exception, operate at the client layer. Okay. So like, uh, like they're they're talking about Samsung Galaxy S three and Windows ten drivers and NetBSD and the Linux kernel and OpenBSD uh, as things that are vulnerable. Well, the Linux so, kernel that will mean every single router slash AP, right? Correct. But if it doesn't, if, like, ultimately the Wi Fi client validates packets as well. Right, it has a view of what is and is not permissible. It has there's there's encryption of various kinds. Um, we know that there's these TCP reassembly flags that appear, apparently are not checked in certain cases, but that's again something that potentially is fixable in software. But I I get a strong impression that this is not something that cannot be resolved. Like it is not a fundamental issue with the Wi-Fi protocol. That seems certain, and it doesn't seem likely that it's going to require coordination with firmware updates on the server and the client side. It is fully mitigatable on the client side, as best I can tell at this time. Sounds good. What I did hear, though, it's that uh, there was a very direct bet of a $1 bet between uh, these attacks making it to the Pineapple uh, framework within six months and not making it into any framework within the next two years or something like that. So I'll, I'll take the bet and I'll put $1 to six months. Who's taking the other side of that bet? Oh, you, Paul. <laughs> I, I think you're putting words in my mouth. I don't know what you're talking about. I got to go and check the audio back then. Uh, anyways, uh, uh, all jokes aside, uh, moving along. And this one uh, I actually found, I personally found very interesting. It's some uh, research that came out of Microsoft called Cyber Battle Seam. Uh, basically what it is, is an open AI gym uh, that, but you know they're making use of OpenAI Gem. They are they created a little bit of a network simulation that allows agents, both you know the offensive or, or the, sort of the, the red and blue agents, uh, to actually either attack or defend the network. Uh, and why they use OpenAI Gem because it's almost a standard when it comes to like training, reinforcement learning models and agents. Uh, I found it personally interesting because it's been doing this kind of research for the last three years as well. Uh, nothing public yet, but uh, I've been playing around, building my own things, literally also building uh, a network simulator because it makes no sense to clearly create a, a network. I think from what I was reading in this case, they actually have somewhat of a static topology um, in order to you know play different agents and different type of like attacks. Um, but I personally think that this is the future of both defense and offensive technology. Uh, very smart reinforcement learning style agents where they are launched in the network and they can either be defending and trying to find attacks or 
being offensive and trying to do it. Um, the way that, uh, to better describe this, is either you have a security analyst that is an agent, a computer agent, or somebody doing Metasploit, uh, but a, a little bit more sophisticated and being able to predict based on the, you know, the environment data, which, which is the best attack to take or which one is the best path to take. At a very like naive level, uh, Bloodhound and some of the other attack frameworks when it comes to the, that you see are already making this type of like interesting progress, but this one is still very, it's very in its infancy, but it's a very interesting shift that I think the industry uh, really needs to start taking and uh, putting a lot more efforts into developing and, and creating interesting agents that that can actually be good. Uh, and I know a lot of people say, hey, this is, this is dreaming, it's, it's never going to happen. But if you actually are a little bit into reinforcement learning and you follow some of the latest research into, you know, um, how to play Go, how to play chess, uh, use, and trying to solve reinforcement learning, uh, trying to solve these problems using reinforcement learning, there's been tremendous amount of like improvement, uh, mostly coming from um, a company owned by Google out of uh, UK. And it's, or open AI here in, in, in the States as well. So it's, I think that once you actually start getting some of that research merged into security, it's, there's going to be a very interesting jump and probably a lot of vendors creating companies around it. But I, I just thought that I haven't seen anything actually being published, uh, that it actually takes, uh, you know, besides some random guy creating something that, that it's still very immature and not really uh, well tested. But this one seems, you know, coming out of Microsoft seems to be in its infancy, but very, very mature for what it is. Uh, so I, I just, I hope them the best. And I, and I, and I, and I hope that, you know, that this project continues to evolve as much as it can. Sounds good. I, m machine learning is basically just like magic pixie dust that I can rub on things to me. So well, this is actually not machine learning. This is reinforcement learning, which is a different type of learning. Interesting. Do we do we normally group it under ML or is no? It it's something. It's, it's 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 something. I mean, it, you will group it under AI, but it's it's different type of learning model. It's where you actually take an an agent, quote unquote, and you start showing it an environment and the different actions that it can take. And it's kind of like what, how humans act in the sense like, hey, if you do A, you don't get a reward, but if you do B, you get a reward. So the whole objective of the agent in the environment is to try to maximize reward and, and, and come it out. So you actually build an environment where you say, hey, if you actually take action A, you have a reward. If you take action B, uh, you don't have a reward. And it's... And, and again, I'm being extremely oversimplifying the problem you're going to explain, but in, against the type of machine learning um, here. And I, if there's somebody who is actually an expert in like this field, it's going to tell me that I'm stupid, but that's fine. I'll, I'll try to continue to explain it. And the machine learning model is the one that will familiarize, the ones that people mostly refer to and use. Uh, reinforcement learning is not yet as mainstream as machine learning, uh, I think. so. It's just, you don't, you don't see a lot of applications uh, from it. So I, I think I have seen some reinforcement learning things in the gaming space where people have tried to use reinforcement learning to train uh, AIs to beat video games as fast yes. as they can or as far as they can. This is the company that I was telling you before, OpenAI and uh, DeepMind uh, that is owned by Google. And that's the company that I was saying that is out of the UK. Both of them are... I think they're sort of like the leaders in the field and they have been making in, in, incredible. If I remember correctly, OpenAI actually was uh, trying to play Dota and they actually have done amazing success. They started doing the single uh, person and now they have five, they have the five to five games uh, with agents playing like world-class leaders. And DeepMind was doing StarCraft uh, and, and DeepMind is the one that actually also did Go and Chess uh, with um, they started, I think it was AlphaGo, AlphaGo. Right. yeah. So those, those models potentially could, or some version of those models potentially could be used in some of these, you know, like frameworks and it, this framework uses the open AI gym 
uh, there is a Python framework that actually allows you to test against any sort of type of agent. So you could, you know, you could take the same environment, train it with different type of agents and see which one actually acts better for the same environment. So it's literally, it's, it's, it's literally a framework meant to allow researchers to train different agents or using different models. But the fact that, that I never seen before is like the actually this one actually has sort of a, the concept of a defense and offense. So it's not really like, oh, let's, let's build something that it's the nest uh, for those that are uh, ghost in the shell funds, uh, attachy commas, <laughs> AIs to help you attack and hack through things. But no, like actually, you know, build something that both have the capabilities or different agents that both is, its job is to defend the network or the, or, or the host or, or the instance. And then the other one is to actually attack it. I, I think there is extremely interesting research that is still in, is still in its infancy, but it probably could by all means become the future uh, and, and the future way how we actually do security. I think that's very cool. Like reinforcement learning, and that's all the sort of Markov decision tree stuff. It's good. The nice thing about RL is you can explain it to people in about 10 seconds, but I think people can spend their whole lives trying to actually get good and, and really understand it and drive it. Um, I'm very much at the 10 second end of that spectrum. So I can't really add much to this other than say, I think it's exciting. And I think there's, there's entire framework frameworks of simulations that we still need to get better at building to be able to really realize things like RL effectively in terms of understanding how to attack and defend systems. Um, it actually fits really neatly into the, into the attack tree stuff we were talking about at the start, which is just, you know, there are these many branches I can pursue. Um, as a as an attacker right now, I'm always going to try and go for the thing that's simplest or lowest cost. Um, you know, Kelly Shortridge and others call this attacker math, right? You're basically going to spend the least amount of effort to try and achieve your goal. And it, if you're not successful, kind of then you try the next branch along and the next branch along and you get more, more and more complex and more and more expensive until you get into like, trying to find some zero day in the thing you're targeting because nothing else has worked. So I think RL is, uh, reinforcement learning has got a huge, huge future in the security space in terms of being able to enumerate those many, many branches um, and figuring out different ways to go after them. So you mentioned that they have a network simulator in there and you mentioned that you've done similar things in your own research. What are the other things because not everything needs to be simulated. Some things can be real, right? Cloud is fairly dynamic and you can pop resources into existence very quickly that maybe hang off other things. So actually, let me ask, ask the question a little bit differently because I know you've been doing a lot of good cloud work recently. Why do I need a simulator for a network when things like software-defined networking now exist? When I, was, when I started doing it, I was not, quote-unquote, as knowledgeable as I am of software defined networks and uh, even projects like uh, that could allow you to start uh, a micro VM within milliseconds. So I think when I decided to go through a simulation is because I actually wrote this uh, network simulator that it's uh, basically it's uh, an API, a Golang API that you tell them, create me a network and it will give you thousands of nodes with like a relatively high, I think I had about 10,000 different type of vulnerabilities for all of the operating systems that are, that are supported. So it will give me a random some, some set of networks, somewhat following some sort of patterns to, to mimic a little bit of reality, like a bunch of Linux, a bunch of Windows servers, like which the Windows would you know have some definition. So I had some types. And you either create, you could pa pass one and create it, but I could create that in like seconds, the entire network. And the cost was zero, right? Like, because they could run it, I mean, not zero, but I could run it in a relatively, like, I was literally running on a 24 core, like 128 gig uh, computer with, with a fast SSD. And, and the, the thing that I needed the most mostly was memory because I wanted to be super fast and be able to run my agents mm. extremely fast and actually destroy them very fast. So most of these things I was doing in memory. I actually run out of memory pretty quickly, even with 128 gigs. Uh, so because you're, that, you're doing a lot of tests. That that was what I found to be the value of it. Now, if you don't care about cost and if you don't care about having to do, uh, you could create a thousand of these networks at the same time uh, on a cloud provider 
because you can absorb the cost and they don't have to exist that much, maybe for a couple of minutes. You could probably actually, by all means, do this with an actual real network. The, the thing that I was trying to do that I have not done yet is in order to be able to make that jump myself, I actually wanted to create uh, whatever my agents were. I wanted to be under a fake network car driver. So I actually will send real packages and my fake network would actually interpret those fake packages. I mean, they will be real packages because you will think that you I mean like, so basically in order to be able to tell, hey, use Metasploit, tell my agent, use Metasploit to attack this and it would effectively use it. And Metasploit will be launching the attacks to, you know, Ethernet 5, which actually it thinks, the OS thinks is a real one, but it's actually a fake one going to my uh, fake network and it will treat those packages and those attacks as, as, as if they were real. So that's, that, that was my intention of getting like as real as it possibly could. But now to your point, when you actually start thinking about a, a lot of the features that that you could get with cloud now, it actually raised the, it, you, you raised a very interesting uh, question. It's like, hey, why would you, wouldn't you do this? I think if you had a set of well-defined networks where you didn't need it to be like extremely random, I think going cloud actually would make a lot of sense nowadays. It, it, you will get a, I think you will get a much bigger cost attached to it. Uh, so you're, a solo dude like me doing research because you just enjoying it and you actually are want to learn more about reinforcement learning and how it applies to security, etc. Well, maybe my way it's better because I'm learning to do a lot of things, right? Like, and, and I'd say better in the I'm learning thing better. Uh, if you actually want to become create an enterprise out of this or a business, probably going cloud makes a little more sense. That's really interesting. So I think, I think. So the the two main points I took away from that is that um, using an SDN, the benefit would be the the network's already there and it's already compliant with all the standards. You're not having to write any code for it. But the downsides of it are two dimensional and at least so one is cost. It's going to be very very expensive to continue continuously be spinning up these networks and manipulating them, and especially if there are real resources on the other end of them. And the second one was speed, which I think is actually really important, right? Navigating a simulated network in memory is going to be many, many orders of magnitude faster than sending packets. Even over sort of, even if you hosted this in cloud and you were running sort of best in class on, on top of gigabit network, it's still going to be orders of magnitude faster doing it on a local simulation. I'm sure. Yes, and remember, when it comes to reinforcement learning, these things are stupid, right? Like, so you literally need to train them through millions of iterations. It's not billions. Right? Like you might get lucky, but if you actually want a good model, you need to train them through a lot. And then the other one, you need GPUs, depending on what you're doing, actually having a GPU is actually extremely useful. And hence, now you actually know why, why I have those very too expensive GPUs. <laughs> uh, then when I'm not doing this, I'm actually using to mine uh, the thing that Paul loves the most, crypto coins. But yes, I, I, and that, that, that is the reason, right? Like, so... But you can actually scale this. So where you can actually say, okay, I can scale it across multiple things. I can create a, I scale the agents across multiple servers where you scale it enough that the networking delays, don't, is, they're no longer an issue. Potentially, I could see benefits because at the end of the day, you need to test this in reality. So maybe if you have a good of enough network simulator, the real way to do this is you run your epochs, right? You run thousands and you create a model that is good enough and the final epoch it's much much more smaller but it's running it takes a lot more time to run but it's running on the real network so you actually make a combination of the two if you ask me like how would i potentially do it i would say yes like build your build your your simulated network train it as much as you can there until you reach some sort of level of accuracy that you actually want to you know that you feel that your agent is good enough and you're simulated and then test it on the real one. And if it's good, you continue to iterate, right? And you continue to retrain it on the simulated one and and you start over, all over again. Um, but the way that I see it right now, it's, it's for me, it's like I'm not going to change into into a real environment mostly because of the cost. Not, not, not only because of the 
hey, the network is much smaller or anything. It's mostly just because of the cost. If you really needed to like start like thousands and thousands and thousands of computers like through the day, like your bill will probably uh, jump up pretty quickly regardless of which cloud provider you use. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, uh, I think we, we're almost ready for Paul's rant. Uh, but in this time, I think Paul doesn't have anything to rant, so uh, Robert is going to take his place. So, Robert, uh, what is your opinion on this Zero Trust Ninja executive order and how it's going to save us by shifting security to the left and enforcing Zero Trust across all of our government? I see you there trying to trying to trigger me. I actually think that the the NIST guidance on zero trust architectures is very good, um, and it speaks very much to the original intent of the term zero trust, which was very heavily about how you should you should always have explicit authn within networks so a lot of large enterprises that exist today and like other big agencies and other kind of federal and government agencies around the world they still built with traditional security models so they'll have a vpn and they'll have an intranet and all these other things but quite often just by virtue of being on one of those networks you're then able to get access to resources that you shouldn't be able to. That is to say that they implicitly authenticate you as at least having the identity of someone that belongs because you're on that network. Zero trust is all about stepping away from that and using reasonably sensible auth systems um, and basic SSO and other stuff to make sure that every resource that you expose in your internal network still requires you to know who you're exposing those resources to. There is no implicit trust in a zero trust system. And that is how that is how it is defined within this um, executive order. And I don't really have a problem with it. The thing that I do have a problem with, as we're in the rant section here, is the way the security industry and certain cloud vendors are trying to abuse the term zero trust to me to otherwise align with this idea that I don't want to trust you as a business partner. Or I don't believe that you can guarantee me confidentiality or integrity. And they are, start, are starting to see more and more marketing leak out from, from some places discussing zero trust, like a zero trust hypervisor. I always have to trust the hypervisor to a certain degree. I might not have to trust uh, in terms of maybe confidentiality or integrity, depending on certain design choices. I sure as hell have to trust its availability. And, uh, you know, there are, there are other factors within these systems. The rant I would have is that the industry needs to go and find a different term for I am in bed with this technology or I am in bed with this technology provider and I only trust them in very specific dimensions. Because most of the time when cloud vendors are talking about zero trust, they're not. They're actually talking about trust but verify, right? You, you can't stop me doing the wrong thing, but maybe I can leave an evidentiary trail or a, a, a log or something that allows you to know that I did the wrong thing. So that's really my rant, is the industry needs to get better at describing this type of situation, and the industry can't have zero trust. Zero trust already means a specific thing. And if we keep diluting it, then when, you know, this executive order is going to cause a bunch of people to go hit Google, right? What does this mean? A lot of, this, a lot of people will end up on the NIST guidance. Some others are invariably going to bump into this marketing, right? Do I need a, a sassy solution to be part of zero trust? Maybe. Like, do I need a specific type of cloud hypervisor? Definitely not. But I guarantee you right now, certain vendors will come up in that list. So you asked for a rant. Hopefully that was a rant. Do you guys have any questions? Yeah, well, good rant. Uh, more, a lot more softer than Paul's. So I think the next episode, we should go back to Paul. I like his rants better. <laughs> uh, <laughs> One thing that you didn't mention, and I, I will start ranting myself now, it's I completely agree with you. I think that this order is pushing uh, security in the right way. 
I am a little bit skeptical that the agencies that we're asking them to become zero trust cannot even do secu basic security at the level that they were asked to do before. So for them to all of a sudden move to a much better, but yet much more difficult uh, network and you know, sort of like infrastructure implementation of security, it's it's kind of naive. And I'm like, yeah, I'm all for it. But like, if we cannot nail the basics, what makes you think we can actually like move to a zero trust uh, environment? And, and to your point, code and NIST, like, you know, in, within the NIST framework, like if you have a maturity level of one, asking people, are you barely trying to get a one? Like, I would consider somebody that really truly implements zero trust in the way you define it to have a level of maturity of five. So how can you expect somebody to match, you cannot even make it to one, magically make it to five? Yes, I agree. Let's, let's all kumbaya in some magical way become all zero trusty. But to get there requires a level of maturity that I think almost no or very little agencies or institutions actually possess. And they're, in, and they're gonna end up being tall or sold, as you rightly said. All these magical solutions from all these magical vendors that we haven't already seen <laughs> starting to pop up uh, like hours after it. And, and it's not gonna do any good to anybody. They're not gonna really solve the problem. Some of them might actually make it worse because then you ended up in yet another type of supply chain attack if you have enough you know, a uh, crappy vendor saying that they do X security, centralizing all of these things. And it just go back to me, uh, you know, being an old fart and saying, oh gosh, here we go again. So that, that that's my personal rant. And, and like you, I'm not against your trust. I'm actually very much in favor. I think it's a very strong security model if you could correctly implement it. But I think most companies' maturity level are not there to actually move to a real zero trust model, or it will be very difficult and to some institutions, even cost prohibited to move there. I guess time would tell if whether I'm right or wrong. That, that's just my opinion. I think it's a lot more of a statement than an actual like order to do something or realistic order to do something. Yeah, I, I don't think many many of them will achieve much of this within the next uh, the next 90 days but i think it's um it's a good statement of intent and it's a good direction for the the government to be asking organizations to move in oh it's it's a good north star i don't disagree it's just very difficult to get anyways uh, this has been a pretty good episode guys it's it's number 3 already i'm glad that we're doing this and see you both next week